Welcome to the Active Listening Podcast. I'm your host, Arianna, and I have the great pleasure of unearthing the stories and thoughts of others. Today, we get to hear from Cynthia Carr. Cynthia is an epidemiologist, and she works closely with communities and programs to look at health risk factors and then find solutions. She is passionate about using her education to help community members and learn what they need. Cynthia effectively gathers data and translates the facts into practical solutions, helping to support leaders and provide understanding. We recorded this conversation a couple months ago, and it would have been nice to get it out before now. The very nature of this pandemic has made it difficult for us to juggle family, work, and hobbies, as we are sure it has affected all of you in similar ways. However, it is still as relevant as ever, in fact, even more so now. I hope this episode sheds some light on a topic we are all being greatly affected by. Please listen carefully. For some of us, our lives depend on it. Our relationships depend on it. Perhaps some things that are said will make you feel a little uncomfortable. That's okay. Let's sit with the discomfort and allow it to change us. My desire is to share perspectives and stories of others while encouraging you to think for yourself and stir up good conversations. May we see each other as complete humans, regardless of differences. And while we're at it, may we continue to love well. And please, wash your hands and wear a mask. So join me for this conversation about epidemics, the enemy we can't see. So for those who may not know... You are an epidemiologist, and you've spent the last 20 years as the primary consultant for EPI Research Incorporated. You currently reside in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and are passionate about helping people make informed decisions. So welcome to the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad that you could be here to help me and our listeners understand more about epidemics. So how did you first become interested in the study of epidemics? Well, it's very interesting, actually. It wasn't a direct path. Um, So people that study study epidemiology, uh, they participate in a master's program in community health science or epidemiology, and then they may go on to do a PhD. And many people in those classes will be doctors or nurses or or people in healthcare um, so that they can go ahead and use that information for like running clinical trials or or being any kind of a public health doctor. So all of the public health doctors like Dr. Tam, et cetera, would have epidemiology training. For me, I actually did my undergraduate degree in psychology because I was very interested in in mental health and and well-being. And then I did a master's degree in public administration, um, specializing in health policy. And when I did that, I thought, okay, so I can take my passion for uh, well-being, but I don't want to really be a researcher. I don't want to do a lot of statistics, so I'll go this route. And then when I did that, I had to take as part of the core course to specialize in health policy, uh, Introduction to Epidemiology. And I fell in love with it. Okay. Then I did a master of science in epidemiology, um, but never with the thinking that I would be kind of a um, like an outbreak specialist or mm-hmm. in a lab. I always thought it would be more kind of chronic disease and applying again, sort of broadly, mental health and physical health for op- optimal public 
policy. So kind of a long answer, uh, just for anybody who's listening, because my daughter's in first year university now, and, you know, so many young people think that they have to know the answer right away of what am I going to quote be when Mm -hmm. I grow up? And if I go to university, I have to know on day one what I'm doing. I can tell you that until I started a graduate degree, I had never heard the word epidemiology. I didn't know anything about it. So for all of you thinking about your future, just think first about where will I thrive? Where will I feel best? And an opportunity will come to you that you've never heard about today. So uh, just keep that in mind. And I've had a 25-year career in something I didn't know for my first five years. even existed. Right. Well, that's crazy. I mean, I only just recently started doing podcasting too, and I never thought that would be a passion of mine, but here we are today. That's right. Yeah. So can you explain the difference between uh, an epidemic and a pandemic? Because right now we're in a pandemic, right? We are in a pandemic right now. And, and, and sort of difference from in an epidemiological context, an epidemic is more um, kind of a statistical thing where we would say it's it's a statistically higher number of cases than we would expect. So that means it's it's not necessarily something new, uh, but it might be a, a higher rate. And we'd say, okay, right now we're having, whether it's an opioid em- epidemic, so that's related to drug use. So a, a sudden escalation in something that isn't new, but was occurring, but it's too much. Um, so a flu season epidemic would be an example of H1N1, a new variation of that strain, and it impacted large numbers of people. But an epidemic can occur in one country um, uh, or one sort of area more than an outbreak. So an outbreak would be like you're on a cruise ship, to keep it simple. An yeah. epidemic would be within Canada, we're suddenly seeing increases of tuberculosis or, or name your illness. So within a, a larger geography geography is an epidemic. A pandemic is now more of a concept. The pandemic isn't about a number of cases, but it's about it moved. And it's not about, um, I was infected in, in Kingston, Ontario, and I got on an airplane to Winnipeg, and now I'm, I'm a case in Winnipeg, but it was associated from me coming from a place where the disease was. A pandemic means now the, the disease is, we're seeing community spread throughout mm-hmm. the world, right. not just related to somebody flying into that area, but actually now it's taken hold. Now it's a pandemic. It's going up and down, up and down all over the world. And it has nothing to do with people flying in and out of the countries or communities. Right. So then as you are tracking these contagious diseases and the routes that they're taking in your research, especially in regards to COVID-19, have you noticed a difference in infection rates between those who um, care a lot about their individual safety versus those who are more focused on their community and being a part of people's lives in their community? That's an interesting question because there's sort of a, a web of things to consider. And one of which is uh, leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of which is the way the community responds. And then, of course, there's the, all the other factors that are really outside of the control of a community member and maybe even a challenge for leadership, which would be, um, are you in a situation uh, where there's poverty? 
where there's overcrowded housing, yeah. where there's not a good public health system. Um, other things that the, the World Health Organization talk about as co-occurring threats. So is there a war going on? Is there a famine going on? Is there another disease circulating at the same time? And which is why we want to get on top of things with flu season coming up, right. because that will impact both our individual health and the health system. So there's all of those things that go on with, you know, people being closely dense, close density and population that impacts how quickly the disease can spread. And the more, um, poor an area is, the harder it is for people to comply with all of those measures that we try to put in place to stop the, the spread of disease. So for example, if you're in a situation where you're hand to mouth, every single day you must go out and do some kind of work to get some money just to feed yourself for that day, you don't have the option to just stay home. Yeah. You're, you have to make a riskier um a determination or, or decision because you have other more immediate concerns that are weighing on you. So it's not even about your own agency or your own concern for your health or willingness to comply. It's, are you even able to? So there's so many factors that go on that ultimately can impact the control of infectious disease. Um, and they all kind of come together at once and it's kind of like a tidal wave. And yeah. then, question though um there's looking at leadership and transformational leadership versus um what we might call transitional leadership so what you want right now is transformational leadership and some of those characteristics are willingness of leadership to adapt and change as new information comes in willingness of leadership to identify who the key points are that they're going to listen to who's my scientific leader who's my policy leader and i'm actually not going to put them down, uh, particularly mm. in front of other people or on yeah. television. I am going to give them um, respect, uh, both in public and in private, because this is what they do. And myself as the leader, I cannot know everything. I have to have people that I trust mm -hmm. that are going to tell me what they think I should do. I'm going to defer to their knowledge, and then I'm going to implement on the policy side what I think is achievable and what I think is the best balance of what I understand about the science of the disease while still keeping in mind all of the aspects of social well-being mm -hmm. and the economic impact and it's very challenging and we see very different strategies in country in different countries and you can see with the outcomes with disease and death leadership matters the, the hospitals and as amazing as doctors are they cannot treat everyone in a situation where there actually is no direct treatment for the virus yeah only for the complications and you have to be able to have um, the room in your hospitals to treat people so the best the best prevention or the best road to success is in prevention and public health and that's where you need leadership to say to us as community members here's how i'm going to educate and empower you and you've got to trust me you've mm -hmm. got to trust your government that we're being transparent and that we're telling you what we know so that each of you as individuals will understand the importance of working together so that we don't have to become this society of you know this is now criminal behavior yeah right when it's just it's it's 
trust us and let's all work together. So you can see from what I'm saying is it's, it's very complicated. Oh yeah. But we as community members, we are the wild card. We Mm -hmm. are the ones that we're either going to help out government. We're going to be part of the solution or we're going to be part of the problem. And, you know, there's, there's no doubt that we really are informed in terms of what are solutions uh, that we can work together towards and where are some challenges, you know, that, that people are working on, which of course are vaccine development and direct treatment. Yeah. So then how can we reconcile the fact that like numbers are growing and there are these people in the minorities that, that have no choice but to go and continue working and to expose themselves and people with mental health who can't stay home for their mental health reasons and they can't be by themselves. How do we support people like that and how can we come alongside them? And and I think that's why government has tried this staged reopening approach because the impact on well-being has been profound. And we know that while less than 1% of the Canadian population may have been impacted or infected by this virus, as we know right now, significantly more have been impacted economically and in terms of their mental and social well-being. And we're worried about having enough resources to help um, all of us who have been impacted in those ways Mm -hmm. um, to continue to try to thrive through a very difficult situation. So that those are sort of considerations that have to be taken in terms of allowing opportunity for getting back to some semblance of normal. But again, ourselves we need to keep in mind okay so with this what do i understand i understand Mm -hmm. now that that symptoms are not a good sign of infection i understand now that if i feel anything that i think could be a symptom of this i need to isolate i need to do my part to stay away from other people and then if i need to i go and get tested and i call the public health lines for direction um, to confirm that So again, what are the actions that we should take if I'm out and about? I should wear a mask because I understand now that all of us need to think of ourselves as potentially infected because Mm. this virus is tricky. It's got a great strategy. It can take a long time, up to two weeks between infection and symptoms. And we know that up to half of people that have tested positive um, didn't have any symptoms at all. So that's why this virus is particularly difficult and why we've seen kind of it going up and down and we thought we were on top of it and then we start to loosen um, up uh, you know the the rules and then we're seeing more cases again because with infectious disease the more we come back together as a group the more opportunity we give that uh, virus that's still circulating under the radar to spread and uh, so then we need to think back again okay, if I wear a mask, I maintain hygiene, I try to keep the social distancing of six feet. But again, how do I keep my world a little bit smaller than it used to be just Mm -hmm. to stop the potential spread of the disease, but still have my social well-being? I I want to go to church. I want to go to my gym. I want to go to choir. I want to go to a concert. Okay, I want, I want, I want. Maybe now if I'm thinking from a public health risk reduction approach Mm -hmm. maybe I'm going to prioritize what are the two or three things that I'm going to do but in every case I'm going to wear a mask 
and I'm not going to do it if I feel any sign at all that I might have symptoms, but what's going to help me the most? Um, and I'm going to pick those one or two things mm -hmm. and the other things I'm going to leave for now, because the smaller I keep my group of people with whom I'm in contact, the more I am still doing my part to reduce risk of transmitting that disease. Right. And I think it takes a, a element of empathy to be aware of the people that you are affecting and who may be affected by this, even if we might not be, right? That's right. And we are seeing more and more cases in younger people. Um, I'm over 50 now, so I can say younger. <laughs> Um, but that is where the data are showing more and more cases in, you know, uh, teens, 20, 30 uh, year olds, because again, the opportunities with restaurants and bars and schools mm -hmm. are opening. Those are activities that people within certain age groups tend to enjoy. Um, and those unfortunately are activities where again, if you're in, in closed spaces, you're together for lengthier periods of time. If you're eating, drinking, uh, you're not going to have your mask on. So then it has the opportunity for respiratory droplets to spread. So again, thinking about in the beginning, who was impacted, our most vulnerable, our mm -hmm. elderly population, we've done a good job of trying to get on top of that. But we're seeing now the cases um, increasing quite dramatically in these younger age groups. We might not today be seeing an associated um, increased a huge increase in hospitalizations or ICU or death, but don't rest on that mm -hmm. because what we've learned from the states and from other situations is in a week or two or three, what we call an epidemiological lag, this case, this group now where we're seeing more and more cases, we don't live in a vacuum. So then this person could then infect in a week or two or three mm -hmm. by virtue right. of think of you know six degrees of separation somebody that they've never even met but yep. could be vulnerable and then they're impacted by the decision that other person made two or three weeks ago so that's what we need to be careful about now is remembering even if you yourself have a great immune system you're young you don't have another co-occurring chronic disease your immune system hasn't been compromised by other um, by for example cancer or treatments that you've mm -hmm. had in the past you're lucky and you are blessed but take those blessings and remember that i don't get to then just take advantage of that or take it for granted i'm part of the solution here and i need to protect those people who aren't as lucky as me they're not as healthy as me maybe they're not as young as me anymore mm -hmm. and they they're doing their part they're probably quite lonely because they're trying not to get out and about and maybe the one or two times they do go out something could happen and maybe somewhere down the line i played a role in enhancing the transmission of this yeah and that's something my husband and I have talked about a lot is just how we don't fully understand like exponential numbers and how those actually work and how the transfer can actually work. It's like, well, I just saw this one person, but then that person sees more people and just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And yeah, kind of blows my mind sometimes when I actually think about it. And then it freaks me out. <laughs> that's right. And exponential increase is just as hard for people to understand as exponential decrease. Right see sort of a sudden spike and then all of a sudden it goes down you're like wait a second I thought that city was really in a difficult situation and now all of a sudden they, their active case rate has gone down exponentially so what we need to learn from that again is 
what we in epidemiology call this R naught or this reproductive rate. And so, you know, how many other people could one person potentially infect? In the measles, literally, you walk into a room, you can you can infect everybody in that room. That's crazy. So the reproductive rate there is 18 uh, to one, but it could be even higher. Mm-hmm. In this, it's about I think it's 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 between one and two, maybe about 2.2. In order to stop the chain of transmission it has to be below one, meaning that I can infect less than me, not more than me. So if you think about just an easy example is a reproduction rate of two. If today we have 100 cases and every one case can impact two other people, in just 40 days, you're going to have a minimum of 3,200 cases. Wow. 100 cases just 30 days before. And within that 3,200 cases, some of those people are going to end up in the hospital, the IC and ICU, or passing away. If you can bring that reproduction rate down to just 0.7, meaning I can only impact less than me, that 100 cases in, in 40 days could be 17. Yeah. So it could be 17 or 3,200. And the wild card is our human behavior mm-hmm. because that reproduction rate is basically... How much opportunity did you give that virus to spread? So the reproduction rate gets higher and higher. The more you bring people together for longer periods of time that aren't wearing masks and aren't staying far apart. Mm-hmm. So talking about the younger generation, and that brings to mind for me, social media, especially, um, how do you believe the perceived or actual severity of the pandemic is swayed by social media or the media in general? Well, I think there's two um, sort of threads to that. One is if I think about how different age groups get their information. Mm-hmm. So my children are aged 18 and 20. I'm on TV probably four or five times a week. My children have never seen me right. on TV. Because they don't watch what we normally, what we think of as we turn on the TV and there's CBC or Global or, or our typical that's not what they're watching Netflix and using apps. They're literally not even watching this, what we think of as a, as a standard radio or television means of communication, where I think a significant focus is. So I think we need to think about using some of these things that I don't even understand. I don't have Instagram. I don't understand TikTok. I don't have a hot clip. <laughs> this is where our kids are getting yeah. Um, their information and where they're sharing it. And so there's opportunities there for us to think outside the box from a public health perspective. How do we get short, clear messages to the people uh, that right now are actually pushing the uh, increased numbers of cases? But but the, the challenge on the other thread of that is with social media, the opportunity for people to put out information that is not at all true. Uh-huh keeps getting repeated without actually ever um, being reality checked. So people would just look at that and say, well, I saw here uh, a message about this. I didn't reality check it, but I did pass it on. Mm -hmm. So now this misinformation, these myths, uh, which can be, this is not existing at all. It's, or don't wear a mask or, um, oh my God, the world is ending. It's, it's really a, along that continuum but it's none of it is helpful none of it is empowering and there's no checks and balances there so one is looking at how do we get the right messaging out 
and taking advantage of the media by which each group uses. But how do we stop the spread of, of toxic misinformation? And I myself, when I, when I see sometimes um, when uh, interviews with me are posted online, whether they're just, uh, you know, uh, print online or they're actually excerpts of, of television that mm -hmm. I've participated in or podcasts, I'm shocked by some of the really um, not productive and personal and frankly mean comments that are mm -hmm. made. Yeah. I'm trying to help with public health messaging and I'm, I understand that people are anxious and angry and sometimes just hearing this, it's escalating anxiety. And so there can be a um, sort of a desire to immediately go, shut up, Cynthia. Yes. Right. Or you don't know what you're talking about. And I think in fairness, I, I, I'm not the smartest person in the room. I never said I was. But I have been doing this exact job for 25 years. I probably know what I don't know, but I probably also have a good handle on what I'm willing to talk about because by knowing what I don't know, I, I, I wouldn't put that information out there. I would defer to somebody else who I would know would know better. So yeah. um, it's really challenging to try to... Um, even from my perspective, want to continue sometimes because I feel like, did this even help anybody mm -hmm. or did it just escalate anxiety? Right. And that's something that I think about a lot too is this is something that is creating a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety for people. And how do we help support them and help them to go through that fear and sit with it and not just not be okay with it, but to not let it overtake them and how do we continue on with our lives and support people in that way and not be afraid of grieving what we've lost and moving forward and yeah it's a big big topic it has been a dramatic shift in a very short period of time if you think mm -hmm. about even just our lives but think about just generations how with like how things typically kind of take a while to change unless there's like a tsunami or an earthquake that mm -hmm. happens like this. This is unfortunately the worst combination of a tsunami. It's not going away. So we can't clean up the problem. Right. We can't save people, come up with a solution to rebuild and move forward and grieve those that in that immediate situation um, experience loss of life or illness or something dramatic that dramatic event is done and then we clean up and we move forward and we build. We've had a tsunami of an impact of something. Oh my goodness, this is a new disease. Is this a science fiction movie or is this really happening? No, this is really happening and it's not stopping. And what we know is that as uncertainty continues, even if uncertainty is just think of it as a level ruler, that uncertainty from what was that I heard around New Year's Eve about something in China to mm -hmm. January to February. Oh, this is coming closer now. So now my uncertainty is what exactly is the disease? But now my uncertainty is I'm not just wondering. I'm wondering if I'm going to be impacting. Is this becoming a pandemic? Is this coming to Canada? Now it's here. Now my uncertainty is did my school 
year just end? Yep. Did I, am I going to lose my job? Can I pay my bills? Now there's more uncertainty, more uncertainty, more uncertainty. And I'm seeing the virus increase. Oh, over the summer it went down, but now I'm still uncertain. Like, does that mean everything's okay again? I, I still don't know the answer. And so the uncertainty keeps going. And we know with that as uncertainty keeps going, anxiety does not stay horizontal to that it escalates. Hmm. So now anxiety is like a mountain. And in fact, in the beginning, the anxiety might have been a little bit lower than the uncertainty. So and different people would have been at different levels at different time. Right. So an easy example would be beginning of this for us, for my family in March, my daughter was in grade 12. My son was in second year university, but my son is also a passionate hockey player. Mm. Hockey is everything. So when things shut down for us around the third week of March, for my daughter, it was, hmm, March break's starting early. This is kind of fun. I'm uncertain. I don't really understand what's happening, but I'm not anxious yet because it's sort of like, I don't don't have a frame of reference for what's going to come. So I'm not worried yet. I'm just thinking if it's a bit of time off school and then it kind of got into, okay, but now I can't go to Mexico for March break. Well, now my anxiety is going up because I was expecting, I was excited about something. I'm not going back to school. I miss my friends. I miss dance. This is my last year of high school. Am I really going to miss my graduation? Am I going to university? Wait a second. Wait a second. I didn't know that last day in March. I didn't know that was my last day of school. Mm -hmm. I didn't get, say goodbye to my teachers I didn't get to empty my locker in that normal way so her anxiety started to creep my son was right away what do you mean hockey's done what do you what do you know hockey's everything to me yes Mm -hmm. I'm in university but is my season done immediately in March his anxiety was at or above that uncertainty level because he'd already lost something like that. Right. And it hit him because that was everything. He was less worried about university. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was hockey because that's, that's his soul. That's who he thinks he is every day. And that was gone immediately. And then his anxiety continued to escalate. So for all of us with that increasing anxiety and losing those coping strategies, for me as the mom, it's I'm, now I'm losing sleep. As an epidemiologist, I'm, I'm thinking about this as part of my occupational world, but I'm also a mom and I'm a single mom and I'm trying to manage their mental health and all of the things that are going on with them, with my needing to keep working and now the enhanced workload and now my passion for public health. So I can never turn it off. So, but now I can't go to church with my parents, but that's when I see my parents, but I can't go to the gym because my gym is closed and it's still kind of cold out. So I can't get exercise. It helps me cope. And my son is going stir crazy because I've already talked about his hockey that helps him. So we're losing some of those things that we've always used to help us cope um, with our, with our stress and to enhance our social or mental well-being. 
So anxiety keeps going up and up and we're losing our ability to cope. And what we're seeing is unfortunately, even today I saw just a very discouraging video of a young man insisting that he wear a Halloween mask and escalating a situation that didn't need to be. And you see other videos of people getting into huge arguments or even fights over things that are like this seven months ago, you would never have anticipated Mm -hmm. um, yourself doing that or snapping so easily, but it's because give yourself a break. You've been under months and months and months of anxiety. All of us have been, even if we don't know anybody who's been sick. So it's, it's really tough for all of us. Mm -hmm. So recognize it and understand that You might have to look for different coping strategies or different resources, but you need to, um, you need to do it because it's not good for you physically, socially, spiritually, and you know, our, our physical health is impacted by stress and anxiety. Mm -hmm. I had originally phrased this next question as how long do you foresee this pandemic lasting for? And you brought up a really good point and said that there's no way to be for certain about that. And it's difficult to offer people hope when you don't know. Plus, I'd also add that you probably don't want people being angry at you if you get it wrong, right? That's, that's the danger is, is you want people to be hopeful and you don't want what I'll bring back my early days in psychology called learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. The learned helplessness is if I keep pushing a trigger in the beginning, when I push the trigger, I got food. But now if I push the trigger or I don't, sometimes I get food, but now sometimes I get shocked and I can't predict. I don't know what's going to happen. Nothing seems to be responding to my, to what I thought I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. I get up. I've learned helplessness because I just think it didn't matter what I did. Nothing seemed to help. So the dangers are trying to say, let's be hopeful and continue to work together with these strategies. Even if sometimes things start going in a way back in a direction we didn't want them to, we're not helpless and we're not hopeless. But if we said, you know, what we saw in the States, unfortunately, um, with respect to our neighbors to the South, but overly optimistic messaging, not based on any factual scientific background. You're going to have a vaccine in a month. You're going to have a vaccine by the fall. You're going to have a vaccine by this. And then it didn't happen. It didn't happen. It didn't, but you gave people a target. You were giving them dates that were not achievable. The mm-hmm. fast, the fastest vaccine ever developed was malaria. It took five years. It's going to be better. I believe it's going to be better because of the resources being thrown at this. So don't think, oh gosh, Cynthia just said five years. Yeah. But just for a reality check, that's the fastest vaccine ever developed. Um, so to give people a target that was not achievable mm-hmm. just made people seem feel hopeless, helpless, and angry. So I don't have an answer for you as to when this will be over um, because, again, there's all kinds of factors. Right please virus don't do this, but should the virus decide to mutate, which can happen the more um, times it copies itself, which is again, why we want to stop that spread mm-hmm. within yeah. of our bodies. Every time that virus gets in, it's using our cells to multiply, multiply, multiply into the millions. And it's supposed to make an exact copy every time, but mistakes can happen. And that mistake can lead to a mutation, which can be good. It's less dangerous. Um, or it can be bad or in the sense that it's more dangerous. But in either case, 
a change impacts research into treatment mm -hmm. and vaccine. And we want, yeah. to, we want to stop that. So how long this lasts depends both on the virus itself. It'd be nice if it was like SARS and it kind of just tired itself out. We haven't seen it again since 2003, 2004. Um, maybe it'll be more endemic, like there's four strains of coronavirus accounting for about one in four common colds. So we don't know what's going to happen, but we do know how important it is to continue to work together to stop it as much as we can from mm -hmm. transmitting from one person to the other. Yeah. So as we start to bring this conversation to a close, um, I just have one final question and putting all stats and facts aside, what final words of hope can you offer our listeners and what can they hold on to during this time? So um, quite a few years ago now, political ideology aside, um, I saw Bill Clinton speak. And he was post-presidency and he was talking about the world he was, the work that he was doing kind of on a global basis. And the discussion was around at that time, HIV and about, you know, again, that the sort of still concern about is this going to be become a chronic disease or a, a still sort of an, a highly deadly illness. And anyway, what I took away from that his, his conversation and his comments and I never forgot and in fact my husband at the time made fun of me because I put it in my Christmas cards and <laughs> the statement he made was hope but be determined and I never forgot that because what he was saying is that we can always hope for the best but by saying be determined he meant it's not enough just to hope so each of us in being determined can say I'm going to, I am actually a scientist and I'm going to focus my effort on vaccine development. I am actually a doctor and I'm determined to learn as much as I can about this so that I can do my part in treating people. But all of us can be determined in saying, I am educated and I am empowered. And these are the things that I know matter that make a difference that I can do every day. And I'm hoping that those others that we need on the science side, on the research side, on the policy side, that they're all going to do their part. I'm hoping for them and I'm supporting them. My hope but be determined for each of us is what do I know? How empowered am I? What steps can I take so that I'm part of the solution so that the scientists, the doctors, the policy makers, they can keep doing their part and I don't make it harder. Mm -hmm. and, and everybody please, the flu is not the coronavirus, but get your flu shot because the healthier you are, the healthier your body is, you're not fighting the flu while you might come in contact with uh, COVID-19, you will help yourselves, your bodies, and you will help the healthcare system. So when the flu shots um, becomes available near the end of um, October, typically, it's typically at your pharmacy, public health clinics, your doctor's office, please as much as you can that's one part of you being determined is just taking that off the table as a risk factor um, in participating with that side of things and then with maintaining all that we've learned about how to do our part to stop the spread and reach out to each other even yeah. if you can hold hands in person reach out by phone by zoom send somebody a postcard or a letter that might not uh, be expecting it that might feel lonely and um, just getting a letter in the mail really 
can make somebody feel like, okay, I'm not, I'm not all alone here. Somebody's thinking about me and cares about me and, and we're going to get through this together. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Cynthia. I really appreciate our conversation and for some of the clarity that you've helped to bring to this, because I know it's a scary time for people. So thank you. You're very welcome and pleasure to meet you. It was so interesting hearing what Cynthia had to say about this pandemic we're in the midst of. She knows her stuff, she sees the numbers, and desperately wants people to understand how it's more than just facts and stats. This is affecting us on a personal, emotional, physical, relational, political, mental, spiritual, and worldwide level. I hope you now have a few more tools at your disposal when talking about COVID. I hope you paused what you were doing or tilted your head at what might have been said but I'm so glad you stuck with it. Let's keep on sitting with the discomfort and allowing it to move us. If you'd like to hear more about what Cynthia has to say on this topic, please check out her writings. You can visit the show notes to find the link to her articles and interviews. If you have any questions or comments on this episode, need further clarification on anything you've heard, or would like more information on how to support us, please don't hesitate to contact us at activelistening.life at gmail.com you can find us on instagram and twitter reviews on itunes are always welcome and consider buying us a coffee go to our website for that thanks for listening and please join us for more uncomfortable conversations